It's midnight, the podcasting hour. favorite time of the year, and I've got a great story for you this time. Unfortunately, Ryan Daly really wants to tell it himself, so I'm going to give my voice a rest and let him take over. Enjoy it as best you can. Dave Buner opened the door for what he assumed would be the evening's final batch of trick-or-treaters at 8.51 p.m. North Lincoln imposed a 9 o'clock curfew for trick-or-treating on Halloween night, and as principal of Lincoln Township High School, Dave Buner would see any curfew violators swiftly punished the following day. Predictably, the last kids to make the rounds on Dave Street were older kids, mostly junior high students but more than a few freshmen that hadn't quite grown out of dressing up and asking strangers for candy. The youngest kids in the neighborhood, those still escorted by one or both of their parents, came calling between 3 and 5 in the afternoon, well before the sunset at 5.42. Then, as always, there seemed to be an unofficial dinner break that lasted an hour or so. By 6.30, the streets were dark but teeming with life as children, disguised as superheroes or zombies or princesses, or this year, it seemed quite a few, dressed as characters from some Japanese comic book Dave had never heard of, walked from house to house in search of a sugar rush. Trick or treat, the latest and likely last group of kids Dave would treat for the evening, said when he opened the front door. They didn't shout it. There was no glee in their voices, only a lifeless, mechanical expulsion of words. Dave Buner recognized the tone of their voices, the same tone the kids in the basic classes used when reciting the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. Dave Buner knew all he needed to know about a child based on the way he or she said trick or treat. The youngest kids, those whose parents walked them up to the door, would hardly say it at all because they were so shy speaking to a stranger, possibly for the first time, and dressed up like a dinosaur to boot. If they did utter the magic words, it barely registered as anything more than a whisper, and invariably the little boy or girl would wrap one arm around mommy or daddy's leg for reassurance as they said it. The incantation grew stronger and more confident as the kids got older, when a boy dressed as Spider-Man could approach the house on his own while his mom watched from the sidewalk some twenty feet away. But trick or treat did not feel credible when spoken by one child. The words didn't come alive until after the sun went down, when the middle school kids, grouped together for defense and comradeship, rang the doorbell and, when faced by the household's occupant, declared with rhapsodic joy, Trick or treat. Kids that age spoke the words like carolers who'd gotten the holiday season wrong. They spoke the words in celebration because they knew the password to free candy. And the only thing those kids needed to be happy and whole was candy. The two boys who said trick or treat when Dave opened his door with less than ten minutes before curfew did not sound like candy was all they needed to be happy. Indeed, Dave knew for a fact that it wasn't. He recognized the taller of the two boys as Chris Easton, a freshman who'd already been written up several times for inappropriate language, falling asleep in class, and plagiarizing an essay. Dave had met with Chris's mother, who spent the entire meeting complaining about her job, which was why she couldn't make sure Chris got his homework done and went to bed at a reasonable hour. Chris was dressed as the Joker this Halloween night. Well, dressed as may have been a stretch— he had blotchy white face paint and red lipstick drawn out to his ears to exaggerate his demented clownish grin. That was as far as the costume went. Chris wore blue jeans and a black hoodie, nothing purple or flamboyant. He kept his hood up to conceal the fact that he hadn't even bothered to color his hair. 
Dave couldn't see the face of the other trick-or-treater, hidden as it was behind the black mask of the villain of the new Star Wars movie, Darth Vader's son or something. But Chris Easton only had one real friend, Dave knew, and the body shape beneath the Star Wars mask matched that of Shane McGarvin. If Shane graduated from Lincoln Township High School, he would be the first of his family to do so. Dave had seen four previous McGarvins leave LTHS prematurely. The oldest boy was in jail. The two McGarvin girls each got pregnant, one at 16, the other at 15, and both were currently living on government assistance. The fourth McGarvin, Shane's brother Angus, was expelled his junior year just last April. Angus had been repeatedly and aggressively bullying a student named Owen Keeley. On April 15th, Owen Keeley had committed suicide. He named Angus and several other boys in his note. The other boys expressed remorse, or at least shock, when they learned this. Angus, on the other hand, signed all of his school papers that day, Angus Fag Killer. No one on the school board argued with Dave's decision to expel him. So far, Shane McGarvin had shown none of his older brother's hostility, only a defeatist anti-socialism that manifested in refusal to participate in class, refusal to dress up for physical education, and befriending Chris Eaton, whose own prospects for graduating were tenuous. Shane and Chris said trick-or-treat with the same enthusiasm as they would give their order at McDonald's after the last person in line took way too long and had to count out exact change. "'Good evening, gentlemen,' Dave Buhner said." The boys tensed noticeably and glanced at each other. Their bags of candy, which had been held open by both hands, lowered until they brushed the boys' knees. Shane and Chris had not expected their high school principal to open the door when they rang the bell. A savage, blood-soaked werewolf would have seemed more natural, and more safe. Dave checked his watch. 8.52, guys. I hope you're going right home after this. Chris started to laugh. Not as his character the Joker would, though, and not really much of a laugh, but a nervous chuckle. He looked down, then to his friend, then around, all while making a clicking sort of laughter. Shane said, yeah, and held up his bag with one hand. Dave looked at Chris, who just looked at Shane, and then he too lifted his bag of candy. Dave, who had been holding a party bowl of bite-sized Snickers and Butterfingers, smirked and reached into the bowl. He put one Snickers and one Butterfinger in Shane's bag, and then one of each into Chris's, whose clicking laughter intensified. The boy shifted his weight, but still would not look at his principal, despite the generous bounty of two candy bars. "'Have a good night, boys,' Dave said. "'Get home safe.' The kids turned around without saying thank you. They stepped off the front porch and cut briskly across Dave's lawn and vanished into the darkness of the street. Dave started to close the front door and stopped. He looked at where the boys had run off, something itching at the back of his neck. He looked around. The street was dark and quiet. About a third of the houses on the street still had lights on in the windows or the front porch. The street light on the corner cast a hazy orange glow that didn't seem to extend beyond a few feet of sidewalk in any direction. It was dark. That feeling, that truth, seemed more profound than anything Dave Buhner had experienced since, well, since he could remember. Yes, The street felt very, very dark. The lights in the houses across the street were dimmer than on previous Halloweens. Or else Dave needed to get his eyes checked. But that feeling behind his neck, not an itch, not a tickle, it was the proprioceptive awareness that he was being watched. Dave took a step out onto his front porch. He looked down the street to his right and began to scan like a radar from right to left. He peered into the blackness between houses, into the shapeless dark that might be the hedges in front of the Morris' house. He couldn't see anything or anyone, but the sense would not go away. Something, someone, was watching him. Something in the dark. Someone invisible. The chime of the clock snapped him back to full alertness. The street was his street, no darker than usual on any given October night. Maybe he would get his eyes checked, but that wasn't a big deal right now. He went back inside and closed the front door, and only then, when he could hear the chime of the grandfather clock in his study, did it occur to him what that meant. The clock chimed on the hour. Nine o'clock, in this case. He checked his watch to confirm that, yes, it was nine o'clock. He had checked it before giving the boys candy, eight minutes earlier. Had he been outside looking down the street for that long? What had he been looking at? 
What had he been thinking about? He walked down the hall to his kitchen and set the bowl of candy bars on the counter by the stove. He wondered where exactly Chris Eaton lived that the boys would be trick-or-treating in this neighborhood. Dave Buner made quite a bit of money and lived in one of the better parts of Lincoln. Maybe the boys had come to this neighborhood shopping for better loot. Or, Dave couldn't help but speculate, they could be casing the neighborhood for future projects, like daytime visits when the houses were empty. He had no reason to suspect the boys of anything criminal, other than the fact that Shane McGarvin's brothers were criminals. Angus McGarvin. Where was he tonight? In all his years working in public schools, Dave Buner had never struck a student, but he came closest with Angus. The suicide of Owen Keeley had been a gut punch to the school. Students and faculty looked to their principal, and Dave did not like the look in their eyes. Of course, he was responsible, just as he was responsible for all the students at LTHS. Their behavior, good or bad, reflected his leadership. The buck stopped with him. So yes, in a way, he was responsible for Owen Keeley. He accepted that. But he was not guilty. It wasn't his fault. So when the students and faculty looked at him, they might have been a bit more compassionate and not so judgmental. He had been preparing to make his second public statement to the town newspaper when Mrs. Mackenzie escorted Angus to the office. She showed Dave the grammar worksheet with Angus's name at the top. Correction, a disgusting bastardization of his name. Angus Fagkiller. He was proud. He had ridiculed that boy, tormented him to death, and he was proud. Dave grabbed Angus McGarvin's arm and pulled him out of the office. He walked him out of the school, and when the boy didn't resist, Dave pulled a little harder than he needed to. The last few steps, he pushed Angus to the edge of the property and said, Don't ever come back. The boy flipped him off and walked away without protest and without saying a word. Dave watched him go, all the while feeling the itch on the back of his neck as hundreds of students stared out the windows. After a few minutes, he went back to his office and filled out the forms to expel Angus from Lincoln Township High School. No one on the board or the staff complained. Other than a few whispers at Owen Keeley's funeral, Dave never heard Angus mentioned again. But he had thought of Angus and Owen for months afterward. And now, tonight, those dread memories returned all because of a chance visit from the younger McGarvin. Dave was getting a bottle of vodka out of the cabinet when the doorbell rang. He set the bottle down. Okay, he thought, one last trick-or-treater. It would be good to put the bad thoughts out of his mind. He grabbed the bowl of candy and walked back down the hall, only getting halfway to the door when he remembered it was now well past the nine o'clock curfew. 9.15, in fact, his watch said. Who would be brazen enough to come trick-or-treating 15 minutes past the curfew? Dave stopped. A soaking wet towel dropped in his guts. Angus. Angus was at his door after curfew to prank him, to get some childish revenge. Maybe he wasn't there. Maybe he'd left a flaming bag full of dog crap. Maybe he'd smashed the jack-o'-lanterns on Dave's front lawn. Maybe... Maybe it was worse. Maybe Angus had left a dead animal on the porch. Sure, he might not have graduated from high school, but he might have graduated from juvenile delinquent to felon like his older brother. Dave was already thinking about what he would have to say in the police report when the doorbell rang again. Whoever it was, and it had to be Angus, right, was still outside. He would not have left a dead animal or a smashed pumpkin or a bag of shit. He would be standing there, ready to greet his former principal, because he wanted revenge, did he not? Would he have a weapon? What would be in Angus's hand instead of a bag of candy? A knife? A gun? Or would he just reach in and hit Dave? Just punch him in the mouth or the stomach? Would he force his way in and throw Dave to the ground? Kick him? Sit on him and punch him? The doorbell rang again. Well, it could go on ringing all night. Dave wasn't going to answer it now. He looked at the doorknob and felt the wet towel in his guts ring out with ice-cold water. The door was unlocked. He could ignore Angus, but if the boy was determined to terrorize him, he could just open the door and walk right in. The bell rang for a fourth time, and Dave knew that would be the last time. His tormentor would not wait forever, so Dave could not wait. He rushed to the door, and in his mind he could see the doorknob turning already. 
he put all his weight forward and slammed into the door with his left shoulder and arm. The impact sent a current of pain arcing like electricity through his side and caused him to shake the candy bowl, sending a few Snickers bars to the floor. He felt, or maybe he only imagined, a powerful counterforce pushing back against the door from the other side. He reached the latch and locked the door. It's after curfew, he shouted through the door. Go away or I'll call the cops. He hoped that his voice sounded more forceful and not at all terrified on the other side than it did to his own ears. He hoped that his tormentor would heed his warning and leave him be. Please. Just as he thought the word, or prayer, he heard it repeated back to him. The word, please, came from the other side of the door. And it was not Angus McGarvin's voice. It was soft, not a whisper, more like a whimper or a hiccup. It completely unnerved him. All of Dave's strength left his arms that had tried to brace the door. The counterforce pressing against him seemed to evaporate. Why had he been so afraid? It wasn't Angus McGarvin outside waiting to jump him. It was someone who needed help. Dave reached for the latch again and then stopped. He had almost opened the door so quickly, so casually, as if nothing was wrong. But the ice water pressing down on his bowels would not go away. Angus or no Angus... This situation was not right. "'Who is it?' he asked, and then realizing that he didn't want to know, that he didn't want to deal with whoever it was, he added, "'You have to leave now. It's after nine o'clock.' The voice, still a whimper, as if whoever was out there was choking back tears, said, "'No!' "'God, could it be someone hurt? A real honest emergency?' Dave went to the peephole to look outside. That powerful force he had felt before came back so quickly, so violently, that he wasn't prepared for it. It seemed as if the darkness of the night itself had thrown a black hand at the glass, blotting out the porch light and encompassing everything in view. Then Dave could hear the scream like emergency brakes on a subway train. The noise seemed to come from outside, and then it was in the house, in the hall, in his ears, in his brain, deafeningly loud. The force slammed into the door. The first pounding splintered the wood of the doorframe. The second pounding exploded the lock, sending a chunk of smoldering hot metal to the floor. Dave had taken a step backward with each pound at the door, so that when the third and final push came, the door swung wide, ripping clean off its hinges and slamming into the wall, missing Dave by mere inches. A gust of wind accompanied the door, knocking the bowl of candy out of his hand, sending a dozen Snickers and Butterfingers to the floor. Before he turned to run, Dave saw the figure running up his front lawn. It was a boy, a boy whose face was covered entirely in white gauze, wrapped up tighter than a mummy. He also wore black sunglasses and a fedora. Other than that, his clothes were indistinct, but the wrappings, the shades, and the hat were enough to identify him to anyone thinking clearly as the Invisible Man. Dave wasn't thinking clearly, nor was he thinking about the classic movie. He was thinking, Dear God, a ghost is coming for me! which was just as accurate in this case. The invisible man ran up the steps and threw the wrecked doorway into the house. Dave screamed, and as he turned to flee down the hall, he stepped on the candy bowl. It skidded out from under his foot, unbalancing him and sending him toppling into the wall. He ricocheted and landed on his back. The scream ended with a gust of air shooting out of his lungs. The invisible man was on him in less than a second, his narrow legs clad in those trendy skinny jeans straddling Dave's chest. No, 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 Dave shouted as he tried to push his attacker off. The kid, and it had to be a kid, just a teenager with his face covered, was impossibly heavy for being so lithe. His hands grabbed for Dave's throat. Help, Dave shouted. Help me, please. The bandaged face of the invisible man came down in front of him. Dave could smell putrid, rotten breath. You didn't help me he hissed, and with each word a bubble of blood burped up from his mouth and stained the white wrappings. Impossible, Dave thought. This is impossible. This can't be happening. He couldn't die like this in his own home, strangled to death by... by... That was impossible, too, because Dave recognized the voice. Even though it didn't sound right, even though it was choking on blood, he recognized the voice of... Oh, God, it wasn't Angus McGarvin coming for him. It was Owen Keeley. The dead boy. That made it impossible, didn't it? Owen was dead, but he was also trying to kill him. And if that didn't make sense, he couldn't really be dying now. But he was. Dear God, it was happening. Impossible. But the boy was killing him. Desperate, 
panicky, Dave swatted at the invisible man, trying to claw at his bandaged face. He only succeeded in slapping the sunglasses and fedora off his head. For the last horrible moments of Dave Buner's life, he regretted knocking those shades away, because as the thing that used to be Owen Keeley, an honor student for crying out loud, tightened its impossible grip on his throat, he was forced to look into the eyes of his killer. The eyes of a dead boy. Eyes filled with blood and anger and evil and pain. As the lack of oxygen began shutting down parts of Dave's brain, it did occur to him that he was now only seconds from death. It was certain. It should not happen, but it was nevertheless. With the last electrical impulses driving his brain, Dave thought of the conversation he had with Owen Keeley back in March, three weeks before the boy put a gun in his mouth. He thought of that meeting in his office, a meeting requested by Owen himself, who had taken it upon himself to propose a gay-straight alliance club for Lincoln Township High School. He had filled out the proper paperwork for starting a new club, found a faculty advisor, and made an impassioned case for why LTHS students needed the GSA. Now, as life slipped away from him, as the blackness that seemed so thick in the spaces between the houses crept into his home, Dave Buner could not remember why exactly he had denied Owen's request. Something about sending a bad message to the community, or not wanting to set a precedent. Some reason. Well, it didn't matter now. The time to think about it had been before Owen shot himself. None of Dave Buner's neighbors heard his screams, nor had any of them heard the sound of the front door being smashed in. No one would have reported his death until the following morning, if not for a curious and fateful occurrence. Dave's body was discovered approximately an hour after the ghost of Owen Keeley strangled him by none other than Angus McGarvin. Angus had spent Halloween night smoking PCP for the first time, and then got the wild idea to defecate all over his old principal's front porch and smear the feces on his front door. He parked a block away from Dave Buner's house, and one of the neighbors, taking his dog for a walk, got a good look at Angus and his car, which would both be reported to the police the next day. Angus made it to the porch when he saw the front door was open. No, not open. Gone. The door had been kicked or blasted inside and lay on the floor. If he had run at that moment, things might have gone differently for Angus, but he thought he saw something else lying on the floor in the hallway. He took a step into the house and felt around for the light switch. The light came on. Angus saw what had happened. Then he ran. Of course, by then, he wasn't just leaving a dead body behind. He also left a clean set of fingerprints on the wall and the light switch. Five minutes later, the same neighbor walking his dog walked by Dave Buner's house and saw, clearly illuminated by the light in the hall, the broken door. He went home and called the police. Angus McGarvin was arrested on November 1st, charged with the murder of Dave Buner. The fingerprints put Angus at the scene of the crime. He admitted to wanting to vandalize his former principal's home, but denied that he had been caught in the act and that things had escalated to a violent, though unintentional, murder, as the prosecution claimed. Whether or not the jury would have believed that, we'll never know, because Angus McGarvin did not live long enough to see the end of his trial. He was found dead in his jail cell the morning after Thanksgiving. Most of him was in the cell anyway. His head had been smashed against the bar so many times that his skull fit between them. The guards said they didn't see or hear anything until it was too late. Somewhere, Owen Keeley is thinking, no one ever does. The supermates couldn't stop it. Amazing. It's incredible. The fire and water network couldn't contain it. We didn't come here to fight with monsters. We're not equipped for it. The House of Frankenstein returns in 4D. They meet at the castle and hold debauched gatherings. Four blood-curdling episodes. Four classic horror films. Four supernatural adventures with your favorite superheroes. Four chances to lose your mind with sheer terror. Starring Lon Chaney Jr. When the full moon rises... I turn into a werewolf with only one desire in my mind, to kill. John Carradine. I am Count Dracula, but I'm known to the outside world as Baron Latos. 
You see, before you, a man who lived for centuries, kept alive by the blood of innocent people. Julia Adams. Please, what is it you found? I don't know what you call it. It sounds incredible, but it appeared to be human. Peter Cushing. This place has been accursed to the evil of some who abide here. And at long last, Vincent Price. Nine killed you. Nine shall die and be returned your loss. Coming in September and October to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I can't wait. There isn't time. There isn't time. House of Frankenstein. 4D. My work is nearly finished. Go now. Destroy all I have created. Hello everybody, I'm Ryan Daly, and as you heard PJ Frightful mention, this episode is coming out on Halloween 2017, which also makes it the one-year anniversary of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. In honor of the show's first birthday, I brought back the guest who appeared way back on episode one. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend and fire and water colleague, Rob Kelly. Welcome back, Rob. Thank you, Ryan. I'm so happy the show is back for Halloween, and I'm happy to be back. (laughs) Thank you for that. And you are here to help me cover a story called The Curse of Ozzy and Mary from issue 194 of Unexpected, originally titled Tales of the Unexpected. And the reason is that you have mentioned this issue several times over the past year on your shows, and you always noted that the cover of this issue fascinated you, and even though you hadn't read the story then, you insisted, if I ever got around to this one on midnight, you had to be my guest. So, tell us why. What is it about this cover? Yes, I did. I, I did force myself onto the show, which I'm very proud of. Yeah, this this, this cover uh, by Luis Dominguez, which features uh, a woman on stage. She's talking into a camera, and there's a guy in the background in a uh, real like seersucker suit type thing, saying, "Ha ha, the curse is working. She'll never upstage me again." And the woman, her half her face is melting off, and she doesn't know that. And it's happening on live television. This cover, uh, this particular issue of the of Unexpected, ran in a million DC house ads. <laughs> and that's how I saw it. And there's just something about just first of all, it's just a great drawing. I just think it's mm-hmm. it's well composed. I love the blood red curtains. I love how the the way the shadows are falling across. You know, we're seeing the the harsh lighting of the TV cameras and stuff like that. So, and I like how creepy and like wormy the guy in the background looks. He has this kind of like beady like. Argh. There's just something about this woman's face melting off, and the fact that she doesn't know it is just so terrifying to me and when i was a kid this image was just so creepy i couldn't bear to even read this story now i grew up you know with a fairly thick skin in terms of horror i wasn't a weenie like chris franklin i could handle a lot of <laughs> I was stuff gonna say. <laughs> yeah uh but this this particular image just was always like nope nope not gonna read it nope 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 and so when you finally launched it's midnight i was like well i'm i'm, I'm in my 40s now i think i'll screw up the courage <laughs> to read this story if you ever want to cover it so i'm making the sacrifice that i did read in fact this story the curse of ozzy and mary just to see if it if it lived up to this amazing cover and we will find out whether or not it does in a few minutes um Spoilers, it's really hard to live up to this cover because it yep. is so good. Uh, and you're right, it's just, it's shocking. And it's, I, I absolutely understand why this cover would be used in the house ads to sell this book. Uh, a little bit of other context, just uh, in terms of the publication of this one. This was a, a strange, weird time when Tales of the Unexpected, also called Unexpected at this point. This became a dollar issue, and for about seven issues, from issue 190 to 196, which was in late 1978 to early 1979, Unexpected became a dollar comic that absorbed the other horror titles, House of Secrets, The Witching Hour, and Doorway to Nightmare. So it basically collapsed four different horror books, and every issue of Unexpected had like three of them, three issues in each one. This comic uh, cover dated November and December of 1979. The actual on sale date was August 23rd, 1979. So. The Curse of Ozzy and Mary is written by Michael Uslin and drawn by Tenny Henson and edited by Jack Harris the same team behind the story Hopping Down the Bunny Trail that Martin Gray and I covered last Easter. This story, though, was colored by Jerry Serpe. 
we begin with Abe's narration. The king and queen of prettiness are on the air. America's sweetheart and super teeny bopper. All is apple pie for them until they turn and begin to rot from all the sweetness. Then the rats and vermin show themselves and crawl over the victims of the curse of Ozzy and Mary. America's Sweethearts, the darling brother and sister duo Ozzy and Mary, film part of their TV show. When the cameras are rolling, the siblings engage in playful banter and gentle ribbing. But as soon as the director says, cut, Ozzy and Mary's true hatred for each other is revealed. He claims she stepped on his lines. She says he hogs the camera. Ozzy starts to threaten her, but Mary says he doesn't have the guts. She says she's been carrying the show for years and calls him nothing but a rat. But she's the one stuck like a rat in the cage, Ozzy points out, because of the airtight contract they signed. Mary walks away, saying she'd kill herself just to get away from him. Probably not for the first time, Ozzy thinks of killing her himself. The next night, Ozzy slinks around the set and finds Vargas, the mysterious special effects engineer, whose reputation for astonishingly real effects is known throughout Hollywood. Ozzy pays Vargas $25,000 to get revenge on Mary, but Vargas warns him that there may be unforeseen consequences. A week passes where the siblings rehearse for the next show, while continuing to drive each other crazy. On the night of the taping, just before the cameras roll, Mary steps into Ozzy's light. They scream and bicker, but when the stage lights go up and the cameras roll, Ozzy and Mary fall into their regular routine, singing the opening number about how much they adore each other. As the stage lights burn hotter, no one in the audience or at home knows how much these two hate each other, or how horrifically this episode will end. Mary starts to welcome their first guest when Ozzy notices that the heat from the lights is causing her makeup to run. He thinks this is Vargas's work finally coming to fruition, but it's more than just makeup that drips down Mary's face. As Ozzy and America watch in horror, Mary's face liquefies and oozes into a puddle, revealing not a human skull beneath, but the head of what Ozzy called her, a hideous rat. Mary curses Vargas, whom she had enlisted to perform a similar trick on Ozzy. In fact, Ozzy was so caught up in Mary's transformation that he didn't realize the same thing was happening to him. Both of their faces have melted off, revealing their true nature, savage rodents. They curse at Vargas, not knowing if this transformation was an uncanny special effect or the work of magic. But either way, the effect is irreversible. The rat faces are their real faces now, and Ozzy and Mary scream as the director yells, Cut. So, Rob, now that you have actually read the story, what did you think? Okay, it doesn't live up to the cover, <laughs> and there's there's no way it could have, because the cover has had 30 years for it to burrow into my brain, and where I was like, oh my god, what is that's the scariest story ever published, and then one issue of Unexpected. So there's no way it lives up to the cover. That said, I dig it. I think this is a fun story. I love Terry Henson's work. Mm -hmm. I don't know where has this guy been all my life. I think this <laughs> stuff is really interesting looking. It's got a kind of like high like almost like a katie keen fashion type look to it mm -hmm. like you could see and yet he's doing these horror stories <laughs> i i don't know i i'm completely unfamiliar with this guy uh michael uslin of course has gone on to absolutely nothing we know that he <laughs> never accomplished anything in his life after this uh but i mean i think the story doesn't quite hang together that you know the, the the makeup guy like why does he do this like he just sort of comes in for three panels and he manages to be like this magician with all this like i don't know like i think it needed another angle where he has some reason to want to get after the brother but mm -hmm. he, you know he just kind of he's like be careful there the process i might be irreversible i couldn't care less which is you know great good idea to tell that to somebody <laughs> um so it doesn't quite hang together but it's only like seven pages it's not it doesn't really matter 
it too much. I, it's unfortunate that the Kapow moment, which as we say on the Who's Who show, which is her having her face melt off, is done so quickly. It's one panel and it's way at the bottom of a page in this tiny little sliver of a panel. To me, that's the big moment of the story. And and, and here, Terry Henson, almost kind of Tanny Henson, mm-hmm. just kind of like brushes by it very quickly, which is unfortunate. Uh, maybe he knew what the cover was and figured, well, the cover is already selling it. I don't need to get into it. But I still dig this story. I think it's I think it's fun. It's a neat idea that it's basically like evil Donnie and Marie, which is a, a fun thing. Um, so I, I'm I was pretty pleased with it overall. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where it doesn't quite live up. It's still if we didn't have the cover, I think the story would be a lot better. Or it, would, it would feel a little bit more rewarding. I think the cover is so dreadful with the face melting off Ugh. that when you get to the final page of the story and it's like they turn into rats, it's like really that seems yeah i know the rat like why do they become rats yeah like that's that's, weird weird visual like okay in terms of like symbolic retribution or irony it's like okay i'm sure they called each other worse things than rats and maybe this is just what the code would allow at this time but i was like they could have been more like they could have just been like their faces melt and they're dead or something like that like them having to live with this just being rats yeah it's kind of Okay, it's again, it's fine. I don't want to come. It like in a, in a vacuum, this is a really, really solid kind of like shocking story at the end. Um, that's just fails to live up to unfathomable expectations by Luis Dominguez's cover. Yeah. Um, one of the things about the art and Tenny Henson is so good at like putting in these lush characters was that this story is so obviously making a parody of Donnie and Marie Osmond. Whose, whose show ran from 1976 to 1979. It would have been off the air for about six or seven months at the time that this... Uh, this but they uh, were huge in the culture. Oh, they were course, huge cultural figures in the 70s. Yeah, and, and, but that's the whole thing. It's turning this like loving brother-daughter combo thing into this nightmare like, backstabbing couple that tries to kill each other. Of course, the art in neither case, the cover nor the interior art, neither of them draw these characters to look like Donnie and Marie Osmond. No. And I don't know if they were just afraid of being <laughs> being uh, sued because the likeness was too close. But it's like, I mean, just the fact that their names, Ozzy and Mary, as opposed mm-hmm. to Donnie and Marie Osmond. Um, so I just thought that was kind of funny. And I wondered why, if they were just afraid of a lawsuit or if there was another reason, just a disconnect for why neither of the, the cases in the cover or the interiors were drawn to look a little bit more like them. You know, and might, this might just be a thing for me. Like, you know, we all have our, our particular things that scare us more than some other things. There's something about like your face melting off, like while you're conscious and like aware of it, that is really nightmare fuel for me. Like, I, you know, ever since probably ever since I saw, well, this would have been before this, but I mean, like when Tote's face melts off and Raiders, mm-hmm. like yeah. that is just like, oh my God. And then there's a scene in, I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but there's a scene in Drag Me to Hell, mm-hmm. the Sam Raimi horror movie, where somebody's face starts to flake off and it's to me it's like that there's just something about that that's horrific and so this cover just the way it's composed and just the idea that she's on television like you imagine being at home and watching that yeah, like you're watching really. a variety show and all of a sudden you know half of Cher's face starts to fall <laughs> off you're just like oh my god it's just something so grotesque about it so yeah this the story is weirder and the rat thing doesn't kind of kind of comes out of nowhere but it's unusual enough and again i think Ter- tenny henson's work is is really really quite distinctive i i I will. I, I kind of want to like look him up and see what ha- or him or her. I don't know if it's a man or a woman. Actually, um, what happened to them? Like they didn't really seem to do much comics work outside of horror, DC horror. I'd like to know whatever happened because I think it's really a it's very distinctive style. Yeah, it's true. And I, I did want to give Michael Uslan a little bit of a shot because in um, on page four of the story, in panel four, there's a caption that I really kind of liked. It's under the glow of the hot stage lights, the Ozzy and Mary show continues without anyone knowing the real script, the terror-filled conclusion that will leave both audience and crew screaming, but not for more. I like the sense of dread that that, that caption uh, mm-hmm. conveys. I I wish it was fulfilled a little bit better. Um, I, I wish the promise of that uh, that dread was, was capped off by something a little bit more powerful, a little bit more terrifying than the rats, because I think... And part of it, I think, I think Henson just kind of draws them sort of like comical, like it doesn't have the same hook that the bunny rabbit biting a kid's uh, chocolate-covered head off of in the the story that Martin Gray and I covered. 
I just I love their gleaming white teeth. Yes. I love that there's yes. no lines on their teeth. It's just that they look like they have like their hockey players. They have this big <laughs> mouth guard. <laughs> yeah. So um it's it's a cool story. It's a fun little short five pager. I, I I wish it could have had I wish it could have lived up to the promise of the cover. It couldn't, but I don't want to fault it for that either, because just on its own merits, like, you know, it's just one story in this anthology with a bunch of other stories and a like a twenty five page Madame Xanadu story in here. You know, if if something else had gotten the cover, then we wouldn't have had the same expectations. But right. then it's possible that the story would have been forgotten and you never would have mentioned it and we never would have covered this story. Never would be here. I would be off doing something else. I would not be spending time doing this, which is I, which would be too bad because I like being on the show. Yeah. Uh, it's also nice because it's just an interesting setting, the world of mm-hmm. show business. Like that's – I mean you have to think Uslan, considering he went on to become a Hollywood producer right. he, and, and had experience. This is probably you know getting, getting some frustrations out about working in Hollywood by writing a story about backstabbing people whose face melts <laughs> off, faces melt off. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, there's how many, you know, horror stories are take place in cemeteries and all the, you know, your typical trappings. But here there's no shadows. There's no crypts. It's all bright, hot lights. It's, it's just the unusual. It, it's color. It's got a, I love the the coloring. It's got, everything looks like uh, like it's candy colored. It's all these pinks and blues and like real light. It just doesn't look like your typical horror comic book story. So I, I enjoy that part of it as well. This one could have been adapted into like an episode of Tales from the Crypt back when oh, I was watching yeah. like an HBO Absolutely. or something. Like this one could have fit into that mold. Like if it had been a little bit harder and had actually like originated from one of the EC horror books or something. And yeah. It's funny. This this book features an ad for the same comic. The, the the ad with the unexpected cover is in this <laughs> comic. So it's it's advertising itself. <laughs> Do you like the story? Pick up this copy of Unexpected. <laughs> Flip back a couple of pages and there you're going to find it. It's funny. It says this book was on sale on August 23rd, which means it could have been a mountain comic for me. Oh. But I would have been I would have been too chicken to pick it up. I would have been like, nope, nope, nope. That girl's face is melting off. Not a-. It's funny, though, if you look in the ad, um, her melty skin is colored like a like a softer brown. It's mm-hmm. not pink and red. I think they're trying to soften it a little because they didn't want pe- maybe to. You know, to look like it's like actual blood or pink or whatever. So they're right. trying to dial it down a little. And I think that's part of the reason I like the cover is that it's more gory than DC was usually doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they they had to still do code approved comics, and they probably couldn't get away with it. But uh, here, they really kind of went for. It. I mean, and you even see like her eye socket is empty. Like there's no eyeball in it. So you see like the goo dripping out. Like it's it's just really very Italian horror, and I, I really appreciate that. Right. Well, I think uh, I think that's all I really need to say about this one, folks. If you if you want to read along with the story, uh, it will be posted on the Fire and Water Podcast Image Gallery. So uh, check that out to to follow along and see see the rats as they are. <laughs> Rob, thank you very much for being my guest once again on Midnight the Podcasting Hour. Where else can people find you in the podcastosphere or otherwise? Oh, just click the shows button on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and I'm on like half of those shows you see <laughs> represented, so you can find them. But but I'm very happy to, to be back. I really enjoy it's It's Midnight. I think it's a terrific show, and I'm very happy to be even a small part of it. Thank you very much. All right, folks, we're going to take another short promo break, and then I'll be back with your listener feedback from the last episode. Don't go away. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. Because you demanded it. It's Treasury Cast, a podcast devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. DC, Marvel, Archie, IDW, and more, bigger than life. It's the Treasury Cast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on fireandwaterpodcast.com. The last episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour came out back in July, July 10th, in fact, the day my son was born. I had planned to record an episode that night with my wife covering the first I Vampire story from House of Mystery, but our schedule got a little complicated. I promise, Angie and I will get to that story in time, but I'll talk more about that at the end of this episode. Anyway, on the last episode, Nathaniel Wayne and I covered one of the Spectre stories by Michael Fleischer and Jim Aparo. The episode received several great comments on the Fire and Water Network website, as well as a handful of the usual rubbish. 
for example. The first comment came from Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast. Paul said, This episode demonstrates that podcasting analysis effect where you turn on the content because you have to think about it more than you normally would. Yeah, some comics, some movies, TV shows, as much as we adore them, they don't always hold up to heavy scrutiny, and maybe shouldn't be. Uh, Ciscoid from numerous shows here on the network, including FW Team Up, Gimme That Star Trek, and First Strike the Invasion podcast said, No matter what, that scissoring scene is iconic Spectre stuff, referring to one of the iconic death scenes in the story. To which Nathaniel piped in and said, Don't Google scissoring. I don't think it means what you think it means. That's good advice for everybody. Uh, Rob Kelly from the Film and Water podcast, Superman Movie Minute, and Treasury Cast, on which I recently appeared talking about the House of Mystery Treasury book, Rob said, These stories are loads of fun, but I don't think they wear well when read back-to-back-to-back, a la trade form. Fleischer was doing a riff on EC Comics, but inside the DCU, with a character that had long been thought of a magical being, completely divorced from the day-to-day grit of our earthly plane. I love Aparo's work here. I know there's no 70s Aparo comic I wouldn't say that about, but he really digs into the horror stuff with gusto. Plus, his 70 chicks are so groovy. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they look good. Somebody else mentions that, too. Uh, Chris Franklin from the House of Frankenstein episodes of Supermates, as well as the Superman Movie Minute podcast, said, During the synopsis, I kept thinking the daughter was behind it and that her and Corrigan knew each other before. Turns out, I was remembering the animated short, which was excellent. One of my favorite DC Comics to animation adaptations. It really should have been a series. Yep, totally agree on that last part. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I really like that cover, despite the weirdness of the ninja chap. His head seems to be back to front. Mind, he is meeting the specter. What really makes this pop is the placement of the ghostly guardian over the Golden Age proportion logo DC was using back then. I wish DC would go massive with boxed mastheads again. Uh, Martin continues, Actually, as the Brave and the Bold was bi-monthly until the DC implosion, Jim Aparo was obviously lazy, not doing his own breakdowns or whatever. Maybe if he'd not wasted time doing his own lettering, which I always found enthusiastic but distinctly subpar. He was a terrific illustrator and should have glowed in that knowledge, rather than showing himself to be less naturally talented in another area. Uh, Brian Linton said, I wasn't previously familiar with this story and took a look at the scanned images before listening to the episode. As soon as I saw the panels where Gwen throws herself at Corrigan, I assumed that she was either one of the killers or had hired them, and was trying to distract or misdirect Jim. To my mind, that was the most obvious explanation for her odd behavior. To find out that she wasn't involved in the crime was a real plot twist for me. I also had a good chuckle when you guys explained that they did go down that road in the animated short. I'm looking forward to the next episode, whatever it may be about, and whenever it comes out. Well, thank you, Brian. I hope you enjoyed this one. Bradley Null said, enjoyed the episode. I loved the animated Spectre short, but who didn't? Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog and the Legion of Super bloggers said, As I have said, many of my early comic readings comes from this early 70s era. They would be about three to four years old by the time they got into my hands for a nickel at local yard sales or flea markets, and this issue was one of the ones that I had as a grade school kid among the Grell Legion and Pasco Superman. I can remember reading these and being excited and horrified at the punishment fits the crime way the Spectre offed these killers. The man being cut in half by giant scissors? Fantastic. The other turning to sand and blowing away? Great. After those, the idea of rapid aging seemed almost quaint. I think Aparo really shines here. I even like the Snake Eyes outfits. But as Rob said, his 70s women are so come hither. Uh, Chris Lewis said that this story only ran to 13 pages explains why it felt like the plot went by so fast and was dense with plot points. The love interest angle was presumably to justify the anguish of the title. I don't think the Spectre felt anguish over the grisly deaths he caused. That's his raison d'etre, after all. Surely the anguish is meant to be the prohibited love that Corrigan cannot follow through with the inappropriately sexually available Gwen. (laughs) After that, Chris and Martin suggested some alternate titles based on the backgrounds of the murderers. Their titles included The Hairstylists of Death... The Bangs of the Spectre, I love it. The Demi-Wave of the Spectre, Barbarous Murder, mm, nice. Death is Permanent, When Death Curls, and A Time to Die, as in color. Nice. Uh, very good, very good. And the last comment came from Edo Bosnar, who said, 
I agree with Rob that these Spectre stories probably shouldn't be read back-to-back all in one sitting. In fact, I recall that when I first cracked open my trade paperback, I read them in increments of one or two every evening while reading other things in between. I think that's a better way to go, as you appreciate each individual story more. That is quite possible, guys. Uh, We might put that to the test on the next Spectre episode, wherein I'll probably cover two or three stories, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, And that brings me to an announcement about the future of this podcast, and I feel like I make announcements about the future of this podcast every third episode or so. Uh, But hey, that's the way this goes. First of all, there will be two more episodes of Midnight this year, one for Thanksgiving and another one for Christmas. Starting in 2018, however, Midnight the Podcasting Hour will become a quarterly podcast. That is a product of my family schedule and the increasing volume of shows on the Fire and Water Network. So I'll probably only do four episodes a year, but there will be added content to each episode. Like a true anthology, this show will cover multiple stories per episode. This will start in March with episode 19. It'll be a tribute to Bernie Wrightson for the anniversary of his death. It'll cover an issue of Swamp Thing and a handful of short stories, each with a different guest host. Later on in the year, I'll do a vampire special that will spotlight several vampire short stories, including the aforementioned I, Vampire debut with my wife. I'll also do at least one Night Force episode covering the next storyline in that series, and a Spectre special. And then there's always the lingering threat of a Phantom Stranger episode. But again, that is still months away. For now, I want to thank Rob for appearing on this episode with me. I want to thank everyone who liked the show on social media and everyone who left a comment. And I also want to wish every one of you a happy, happy Halloween. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight.